About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and, do, and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his procon... Uh, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody. The courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Thanks for reading the Bible so well, reading God's word so well and uh, so helpful for all of us. Um, just a note about your outline if you follow. Uh, this is actually uh, a, bit, a bit wrong. This is sort of the outline I used last week at Harrington Park, but it's undergone a few changes for you guys, so ignore the outline. Uh, it, it'll, it'll be a bit odd when, when we're going through. My suggestion is, um, I mean, you can, there's still a bit of room. It's a bit crowded to take notes, but if you, if you just want to listen and if you want a copy of the sermon, I can email you a copy, okay? So that may be a way you can just relax, listen. Um, there's not a lot of space to write there on the outline. Um, now, uh, when I get home from work in the evenings, I try as much as possible to walk our little pug dog, Phoebe. Uh, pugs do walk, by the way. Um, 
uh, and she uh, kind of makes it around a bit breathless. Um, but when we go around, it's surprising how many, uh, how many Buddha statues I see in people's front yards. Um, I, I, I'm quite amazed, actually. I mean, I, I guess people think they're uh, nice to have there. Um, I have a friend who's married to a Vietnamese lady, um, and uh, Jung uh, has set up in her lounge room a, a kind of little shrine area in the corner uh, where she has photos of, of, of family members who have, who have died. Uh, it's like a little, little kind of shrine worship sort of area. Um, where I work in the hospital, uh, in the hospital chapel that we have, uh, people have put up pictures of Jesus, you know, those kind of very you know, Western-looking pictures of Jesus in the chapel. Um, there's also other pictures of, I guess, saints, I guess, that people um, pray to or bow down to in the, in the, in the hospital chapel. Um, is worshipping idols still a thing, do you think? I mean, do any of you here bow down and worship uh, statues or religious photos? I mean, surely you would say in postmodern secular Australia, um, we've moved beyond all of this concern for for idols and for idolatry. Aren't we beyond that now? Well, God says in the Bible, no. Idols and idolatry, he says, are, are actually everywhere, in every place, in every culture, and they're not just out there, they're not just images or statues or photos, they're actually in our hearts. Uh, a well-known Christian uh, theologian from centuries ago uh, said that the human heart's like an idol-making factory. Uh, and I think that's very true. Uh, our terrible rejection of the true and living God results in us worshipping and serving created things rather than our wonderful, our amazing, our all-sufficient creator. When the, when the good shepherd, God, is not on the throne of your life, then other things, sadly, rush in to fill that gap, that void. God substitutes uh, that are not worthy to occupy that, that central place in, in your life and my life. Well, today in the passage that was read, read to us from the book of Acts, we're going to see that the true preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ exposes and attacks the idols that have a vice-like grip on our lives. So the verse that we're up to in the book of Acts, so Alex brought us up this far last week, we're up to that verse in chapter 19, verse 23, and it says this. About this time there arose a great disturbance about the way. Well, the book of Acts is a really good book for us to be working through. Uh, in, at Minto Church, where I was a minister, we actually worked through the book of Acts as the very first thing we did every year for quite a number of years. So the first five weeks of January, we started in the book of Acts and slowly worked our way through the book because the book of Acts was such a great book to get, it, get us in the right frame of mind for facing the year, to get our hearts warmed up and fired up for the gospel and for evangelism and what we're to be really on about. 
The book of Acts is good for us because it lifts our eyes to what we so easily forget, that the world, its kingdoms, its powers and rulers are not all there is. There is a greater kingdom. There is a greater king. Though we can't see him, we believe in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is calling all of us to turn from our idols so that we can worship and love and serve him. All of us were made by him. All of us were made for him. Well, Jesus' call on our lives is why a great disturbance took place in this ancient city of Ephesus, a city-wide uproar, uh, an angry mob. The threat of violence was very much in the air. And this threat, we read, is directed toward the Christians and their idol-smashing message. Notice uh, in this verse that the first Christians are called what? What are we called? The way. We'll come back to this description of us. Are we living up to it? Are we being the way in our families, in our neighbourhood, in our cities? Well, the city of Ephesus was a very strategic place for the Lord Jesus to come to. The risen Jesus Christ sent his ambassador, Paul, to go to Ephesus. Paul was uh, Christ's messenger, Christ's apostle. Ephesus was a very famous place, famous for its markets, for its trading, for its commerce, a very religious place. In the uh, city of Ephesus was the, was the temple of the great goddess, Artemis. Uh, who in Greek mythology was known as the goddess Diana. And like Sydney, people in the surrounding areas uh, would go to Ephesus to spend time there for shopping, for entertainment, for the arts and culture, and of course to visit the impressive temple of Diana. The temple was full of beautiful artwork and sculptures. An image of the goddess was in the temple. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Because of this temple being in Ephesus, there was money to be made. There was a whole industry of silversmiths and related trades making and selling little silver shrines of the goddess Artemis. And now this city is in uproar. We know it's a big deal because it fills the theatre in Ephesus. On the screen's a picture of the ruins that are still there. It's estimated that the uh, theatre... Uh, could seat between 20,000 and 25,000 people. Imagine it. The uproar, the noise, the people. Two of the Apostle Paul's travelling mates are dragged in there in front of the mob. Uh, Paul, being the leader that he is, he, he wants to be out there with them, but he's restrained, he's held back. Not a good idea, Paul. Don't go in there. Look at what it says in verse 32 on the screen. There's, there is really mass chaos, isn't there? The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. That's kind of scary and funny, isn't it? Mob violence is scary, if you've ever been part of it. We've seen a little bit on the TV recently in, 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 in France. Uh, the mob violence taking place there. I mean, what, what's kind of funny here is that they, a lot of them don't even know why they're there. They've just been caught up, carried along, 
Yet they're still very happy to join in all the shouting, all the uproar, because one thing they do know, there is some kind of threat in their midst, some kind of threat to their way of life. You see, the coming of King Jesus to this great city has posed a threat and a danger to their culture, to their way of life that is known and loved by the citizens. What is it about the gospel that makes it so dangerous? Why is the gospel of Jesus so capable of turning people's lives upside down? Well, the silversmith Demetrius is in no doubt where the threat comes from. He points his finger at that fellow Paul. Have a look at verse 26. He says, You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. Well, he says, here's the thing, he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Gods made by human hands. What is an idol? How would you define an idol? How would you explain an idol to someone? And how might we begin to name the idols in our own hearts? Well, an idol basically is anything so central to your life that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. Idolatry is when you look at something and in your heart of hearts you say, if I, if I have that, then my life has value, my life has meaning. And if I would lose that, I don't know how I'm going to live. I don't know how I'm going to cope. An idol can be anything, can't it? Grandchildren? Family? A partner? Career, money-making, achievement, critical acclaim, social standing, romance, competence, skill, physical beauty, yours or someone else's? could be a political or social cause or your own moral record or your own religious activity or your own ministry success can even be an idol as well. It has been said of our Australian culture, I don't know what you think about this, that in Australia we very much worship pleasure and comfort, so much so that we at all costs try to avoid any kind of pain or suffering. We so want our lives to be comfortable, so want our lives to be full of pleasure and ease that we will do anything to push away pain, to push away suffering. I, I think that's true. When you think about it, though, that idol is really a terrible denial of Almighty God who became a suffering human in order to save you and me who became a suffering human in order to remake and put back together our broken world. It's also a terrible denial, isn't it, of the way that God fashions pain and suffering in our lives for glory and for good. It can be tricky to identify the idols of our heart and the idols of our surrounding culture, for two reasons, I think. Firstly, it can be tricky to identify our idols because basically, particularly when we don't really want to be very honest ourselves, I think not many of us really want to say, well, here are some things that I'm putting above God in my life. We're not real forthright in wanting to name our idols. But secondly, often idols in our lives 
are not particularly bad things. They're actually God-given good things that we have kind of made into ultimate things. And so that's the trickiness because a lot of the things that we can make into idols are actually good gifts from God to be thankful for. But the trouble is that we tend to give them a place and a power in our lives that they ought not to have. For example, friendship is a beautiful gift from God, is it not? But when, our, when, when following friends becomes more important than pleasing God, then friendship has become something that it was never designed to be from God. And so we could multiply the examples, couldn't we? Making money is a good thing. Having a business is a good thing. Working hard is a good thing. But when those things become the ultimate things, then something has gone terribly wrong. So how can we begin to identify the idols of our hearts? Well, here are a couple of possible ways I'll, I'll suggest. And I, I want you just for a moment to kind of do a bit of inner reflection as I kind of run by you a kind of some possible ways of thinking about what are, the, what are perhaps some of the idols that I have to fight in my life? So firstly, if I said, what, what is it that you really worship? What, what's your heart's passion? What is it that you love praising and talking about? If I was honest, um, for me, it's, it's sport. I, I'll, I just love talking about sport. You know, the first thing I did when I got up this morning was to do what? Check the cricket score. There's nothing you know, wrong about that. But is that passion pushing aside God? I think many times it is. I spend more time worrying about that. Secondly, what is it that you really love? In other words, what is it that you can't let go of or feel you couldn't live without? Is there anything in your life like that? And of course, there are lots of things that we would, we would be you know, distraught if we lost. I mean, people, of course, that we love. What is it that's really got hold of our hearts? Who is it that's really got hold of our hearts? What, what is it, thirdly, that you really serve? In other words, what is it that really shapes your everyday decisions? Um, what is it that kind of really shapes how you choose to spend your time or how you choose to spend your money? or who you choose to be in this world? What is it really? The fourth one is not on the slides, but is who or what in your life ultimately provides these kinds of things for you? Who is it that provides for you your meaning or your purpose in life, or what? Where does that driver come from? Or what about your understanding of who you are, your, your identity? Where do you get that from? Who do you get that from? Or what about your feelings of security about the future? Who provides that for you? Where do you get that from? It's not easy, is it? It's not straightforward to identify and name the things or people that we substitute for God in our life. I like this quote from Tim Keller, who passed away recently. He says this, Every single culture, every single life is dominated by idols unless 
It is dominated by the glory and the grace of God. It's worth thinking for a moment about the idolatry that was present in the city of Ephesus. Because when we do this, we can see how much better Jesus Christ is. Outwardly, we're told that the Ephesians worshipped the goddess Artemis. But really behind Artemis and behind every kind of external picture or object or shrine or statue is something else. It's not the shrine or the statue that you're really worshipping. Behind the goddess Artemis was really the god of money and wealth. Because when the silversmith Demetrius gets up to address his fellow tradesmen and silversmiths, um, uh, he goes on about the need to seek the honour of the goddess. You know, we've got, to, we've got to protect our goddess. But we actually kind of know as we listen to him speak what his real idol is. We know what he fears losing. We know what he can't bear to live without. The wealth, the status, the power and the privilege of being a silversmith making silver shrines to the goddess in the great city of Ephesus. He cannot bear to lose his money and his wealth. The name Artemis is thought to mean she makes people safe and sound. But do the people of Ephesus sound like people who are safe and sound to you? When they rise up at the least provocation and seek to drown out all counterclaims, for two hours they yelled, they yelled together, great uh, is the goddess Artemis. The idols of our heart cannot deliver to us what they promise. They cannot make us safe and sound. They are really weak and feeble things, aren't they? For look at Demetrius' words in verse 27. He says this, There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. The goddess is in danger of losing her divine majesty. Some god she is. Why such a strong over-the-top reaction? Why such a violent reaction? Why such mob yelling and shouting and screaming? The threat of violence is very real. As I said, Paul had to be held back lest he be torn apart by the crowd. Why is it that our idols seem to wield an enormous power over us? Why is that? What's going on? Because all throughout the Bible, the Bible actually says quite you know, clearly that idols are actually nothing. They don't really exist. They're nothing. You don't have to really worry about idols. They're nothing. The Bible says that all the time. They're, they're not really gods at all. They're just kind of made, make up gods, pretend gods. But then why do they have such power to bring such a response? What is it about idols? Well, I think the Bible reminds us that it is through, through idols there is a greater power at work. The power and the principalities and the forces of darkness and the evil spiritual powers of this world work through idolatry to deceive and lead us astray. And so that is why, on one hand, the idols are nothing. Yet on the other hand, they have unbelievable power over our lives. If you expose them and attack them, as the gospel does, expect a fierce and violent reaction. That's why I think our hearts can be 
blind to our idols. Our hearts can be hard. They have such a strong hold on us. And so we're quite resistant to having our idols exposed by the gospel. So what are the idols that you and I need to keep fighting and fleeing from in our lives? God says, you shall have no other gods beside me. The greatest command, God says, is to love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Jesus says you can't love both God and money. If you try to, you'll end up loving one and hating the other. There's no mention of Jesus Christ in our passage. Yet Jesus is the answer to all of our idols and all of our idolatries. He is the answer to the powerful grip they have on our lives. For he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And all of us who turn away from our idols in order to serve and to follow the Lord Jesus, united to him, we are called the way. The way. Unlike Artemis, Jesus doesn't demand that you offer him sacrifices or build him shrines. Jesus doesn't demand that you give him gifts. He himself is the gift giver, the one who freely loves you by giving his life for you on the cross, the one who blesses you with forgiveness and peace with God. He's not like the idols of our hearts, is he, Jesus? He's not feeble and weak. He will never, ever lose his divine majesty. He's not made with human hands. He's the eternal son of God who truly can make you safe and sound and secure. Jesus' people in this passage are described as the way. Why is that? Belonging to Jesus Christ is not just a belief. It's not just a conviction. It is a way of life. In fact, it's the way of life. It's not a way of life for this person and another way of life for that person, but it is the way. Nor is it something we live by ourselves individually, for the Lord Jesus Christ came to Ephesus to save a people for himself a visible alternative community of people called the way. A people who in their lives together are fleeing the idols of their culture, are fleeing the idols of their city, are fleeing the idols of their hearts for someone a million times better, the one who really is God and worthy of our worship, our love and our service. It cost Jesus his life to defeat the powers, and that's what he did. When he died for us on the cross, the Bible says he disarmed the powers and the principalities. He made a public spectacle of them, having victory over them on the cross. When the idolatrous world and the devil and all the spiritual powers unleashed all their fury against the Son of God, he bowed his head into it and he died. And the storm engulfed him, as it were, and he sank. And yet in doing that, he defeated them by bearing our sin in his body on the tree. He utterly defeated the powers and the principalities behind idols. So how then should we live? Well, let me simply just say this. If we are not a bunch of people fleeing the idols of our culture, of our city, of our hearts... How can we expect the way of Jesus Christ to shine brightly in a life-changing way for others? 
So brothers and sisters, let's help each other to flee idols. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this part of your word in Acts that tells us of a time when your gospel came to the great city of Ephesus. And Father, we see there a story of really our lives, of the struggle that goes on in in our hearts. Father, as we hang on to those things that are not, not you and not Jesus, but things that we allow to take your place in our life. And Father, we do say sorry. We do struggle, Father. We're never free of this fight. But Father, we do want to be people uh, who honour and worship and love your Son above all else and who live together the beautiful way of being his people. Father, we hate it when we look no different to the surrounding culture. We want to be different in a way that points other people to Jesus. And so, Father, please help us and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.